We're going to be in Esther chapter 6 as we continue to work our way through this Old Testament narrative. Beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew." Who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So we have arrived at what is known as the great reversal in the book of Esther. Because in our passage today, the gloom and danger that God's people were facing as they were getting ready to experience annihilation takes a sudden and drastic turn. Have you ever experienced a situation or a circumstance that seemed hopeless only to have it change in an instance? You fear the worst from the doctor only to realize that they misread the test. Or they misdiagnosed your condition. You come into class one day preparing to take an exam. And by the grace of God, there's a substitute who doesn't know where the test is. When I was a student at Alabama, 
I walked into Music 121, which is called Introduction to Listening. Yes, we have really challenging classes at the university. It's basically a music appreciation class, and it was test day, and the instructor didn't show up for the test. So it was a class of two or 300 people. It's one of the classes that everyone just takes. And we all looked around, and after 15 or 20 minutes, we all in full unity decided, we're out of here. So we left, and that instructor did not show up for that test. And I'd never seen so many college students rejoicing because many of them, I'm sure, not me, were unprepared for that exam. So we all have examples like this where life is looking bleak and one detail changes making our lives or our circumstances better as a result. That's what we have happening here in Esther 6. The take-home sentence for you and me today is this. Because God is faithful to his covenant people, he can use the most insignificant details of our lives to bring about good for us and glory for him. Let me say it again. Because God is faithful to his covenant people, he can use the most insignificant details of our lives to bring about good for us and glory for him. And that truth is demonstrated through this passage today in two ways. Through a sleepless king and a prideful official. A sleepless king and a prideful official. Number one, a sleepless king. The whole narrative of Esther changes with this phrase in verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. Circle it. Underline it. This is where the story of Esther changes. Within the literary structure of this book, the author uses that phrase to communicate what is known as Peripety. If you're an English teacher, if you've studied literature, you know what that is. Let me define it for the rest of you. Peripety is a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. This is the moment of peripety in the book of Esther. In the first three verses of this chapter, we see all sorts of coincidences that are taking place that will ultimately change the fate of the Jewish people. Of course, you and me know those are not coincidences. It is the providence of God at work. Here's some things that are happening. We're not given any reason in the text as to why the king couldn't sleep. But this is the first step in a chain of events that will change the trajectory of not only Mordecai and Esther, but of the entire nation of Israel. After the king is not able to sleep, he summons some of his servants to bring the book of memorable deeds into his presence. The king, by the way, could have requested any number of things in this moment. He could have requested dancers. He could have requested Esther. He could have requested prostitutes. He could have requested drink food, but in this moment, he asks for the chronicles, the book of memorable deeds to be brought before him. And this book was essentially 
unofficial list of all of the transactions that had taken place in the Persian courts. I doubt that this was exciting bedtime reading, which is perhaps why he called for it to be read to him, because it would bore him to sleep. And yet another miracle is that when they start reading this book, recounting all of the deeds in Persia, it just happened to be turned to the point where Mordecai's good deed would be mentioned, which, by the way, happened some five years prior to this. So what is that good deed that Mordecai did? Well, flip back a few pages, in case you weren't here and you don't remember, to Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Here is the event that Mordecai's name is recorded in the book for. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of of the king. Now, I mentioned some weeks ago that when you get into Esther 3, there is never another mention of Mordecai's heroic deed. In other words, the king does not reward him. He does not honor him for his good deed. And historians have pointed out how important it is, especially in these empires of this day, for kings to publicly reward those who were loyal as a means of promoting their own safety in dangerous times when so many were out to get them. And Ahasuerus, five years prior, never rewarded or honored Mordecai for essentially saving his life. Until, as he's having trouble sleeping one night, his officials read this account and it triggers in his memory this event. And how he had never properly rewarded Mordecai for his loyalty and courage towards the king. Now what happens to Mordecai here is a good reminder and a good lesson for all of us. That sometimes our good deeds are not immediately rewarded. There is a period, as I said, of roughly five years between Mordecai doing this heroic act and Ahasuerus finally rewarding him for it. But the question for us as believers in Christ, if you're a Christian in this room, is are good deeds only worth doing for the rewards that we get on this earth? Of course, the answer is no. We don't perform good deeds for earthly praise and reward. And if we're being honest with ourselves, many of our good deeds, whether we ever publicly express it or not, many of the good deeds we perform are actually done for praise and reward. We might not verbally say it with our mouths, but that's what we're thinking in our minds. And did you know when we perform good deeds, even if it's not explicitly mentioned that we want praise and reward, if that is the reason that we are performing good deeds, those good deeds do not stand before a holy God. 
because they're done with impure motives. They're done selfishly. They're done for the praise of ourselves. Now, I would say that good deeds are still a good thing to do. But just understand that many of the good deeds that we think God will one day reward us for, he probably will not because our selfish, impure motives are attached to so many good things that we do. Even our good deeds that do get rewarded in this life will ultimately be rewarded far greater by our Heavenly Father. Jesus, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, reminds the crowd this truth in Matthew 6, verse 1, when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, anything that we do for show will not be rewarded by our Heavenly Father. Which causes me to constantly think through my life and reflect on how many good deeds have I actually done with pure motives? How many? And it's scary to think about that that list is probably really, really low. So many good deeds are done for other people to be impressed by me. Even as a pastor, we struggle, pastors struggle with this. We want to please you as the membership of the church. We want to be known as good pastors, loving pastors. And a lot of times we do that to please you rather than please God. So we're all guilty of this. But the good news is that because of the righteousness of Christ, even my good deeds that are done in impure motives do not separate me ultimately from a holy God. Because Jesus' righteousness covers even my good deeds done in impure motives. Jesus says this earlier in Matthew 5, 16. The good deeds that are done with pure motives, here's the reason and here's the result. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The reason we perform good deeds, the reason we do good works is so that our Father in heaven gets the glory. So as we think about all of the good deeds that we perform or the good deeds that we're thinking of doing, we should be praying that as we go into this moment of whatever it is we're about to do for the good of someone else, that our primary motive would be so that they see the good work that we're doing and not praise us, but give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Now, while we can't definitively know Mordecai's motives perfectly in Esther 2 when he saves the king we do know this that Haman had not constructed his plan to eliminate the Jews until after Mordecai had done this why does that matter in other words at this point in the story Mordecai is not saving the king Because he is fearful that his life is going to end. Because that part of the story hasn't happened yet. So Mordecai actually saves the king because he cares about the king. 
And even though in the story, Mordecai was not immediately rewarded for his good, te- good deeds, the king did not forget. And he uses a sleepless king who's being read a boring book to start the process of saving his people from annihilation. Number two, a prideful official. In verses 4 through 11, you actually find some of the most comical verses in the entire Bible. They're ironic, and they're ironic for a reason. Immediately after the king realizes that Mordecai was never rewarded for his faithfulness, he begins to think in his mind about how he can honor Mordecai. But he never verbally acknowledges Mordecai. And at the same time, Haman is standing outside the king's gate because he had been encouraged by his wife and his friends to do so at the end of Esther 5. But Haman never verbally tells the king why the gallows have been constructed. This is really important. So when the king invites Haman into his presence and he asks him the question... What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The king, in his mind, is thinking of Mordecai. But in Haman's mind, Haman's thinking of himself. Because Haman is a prideful, selfish official. It's not surprising that the king would ask Haman to do this. Because Haman is one of his most trusted advisors. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. The king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Look at the last part of verse 6. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman's full of himself. He loves to talk about himself and his accomplishments and his riches and his promotions, as we learned last week. And in verses 7 through 9, every suggestion that Haman makes about how the king could honor this individual is ultimately being done for Haman himself. And then verse 10 is the verse that you should laugh at. It reads, Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This would have made a great TV episode. As Haman is sitting there waiting for a hazardous to honor him, with the royal robe and the horse that the king had ridden and a royal crown. I can almost imagine him stepping up ready to receive it when the king blurts out, Mordecai the Jew. The man who was so proud of his many accomplishments is humbled as he leads Mordecai through the square of the city. And the man who quietly saved the king's life, is exalted in the square of the city. Fast forward to Jesus' teaching, Matthew 23, verse 12, when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, 
but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I love this description regarding Mordecai in verse 12, because what happens after he is paraded through the city? The text simply tells us that he goes back to doing what he always did, because Mordecai was a humble guy. He didn't allow the pomp and circumstance of the moment to change who he was. In contrast, Haman leaves that day distraught. He goes home to his wife and his friends, and he's completely humiliated. And when he returns home, he returns to the same people at the end of Esther 5 that had encouraged him to construct the gallows that Mordecai could be hung from. But this time, they have different instructions for him. In fact, not only are the instructions different, the way the narrator of Esther describes his friends is different. Now, they're called wise men. They weren't called that at the end of Esther 5. Here's what it says. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. How is it possible so quickly that Haman's wife and his friends, who are now wise men, come to this conclusion? Yahweh has not been explicitly mentioned one time in the whole book. And yet even Haman's closest friends and his wife have come to the same conclusion that we have communicated throughout this whole book of Esther. And that is, God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. Even though Zeresh and Haman's friends are not Jews, they're seeing throughout the story that Yahweh is at work. And they know that when the God of Israel chooses to act, he will most certainly accomplish whatever he desires to accomplish. The chapter ends rather abruptly as the king's eunuchs arrive and they rush Haman to the feast that Esther has prepared for both he and the king. But the damage for Haman has already been done. His pride, his lust for power, which he thought would be to his advantage... To eliminate Mordecai and all of the Jewish people begins the great reversal that will prove that even God does care for his people when his name is not explicitly mentioned. So our story today reminds us that even when we look all around us and we see nothing but evil, God is still at work God uses evil Haman as the pawn for Mordecai to be honored in this story, which will eventually lead, as we keep reading, to the saving of God's people. Let me encourage you this morning to remember this truth. God is always at work. He is at work in our church. He is at work in our community. He is at work around the world. In 2020... There were 643 million Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. Do you know how many there were in 1900? 7.4 million. The world's most committed and faithful Christians no longer live in America and Europe. They live in Africa, in Latin America, 
We should not just assume that God is not working because we don't always see it happening in our immediate context. In our church, if you want to see how God is at work in other people's lives, talk with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask them, how is God working in your life? What is the Lord teaching you as you study God's work? How can I be praying for you and your family? And as you begin to ask those basic questions, you will see how God is at work in the lives of his people. Allow the great reversal of God's people in Esther to point you to an even greater reversal that has taken place. And that is that we as evil, twisted, corrupt, unholy, and unrighteous people can be reconciled to a holy God through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are born, brothers and sisters, with a heart of stone. And through, without the death and resurrection of Christ, that great reversal of taking that heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh is not possible. Instead of being destined for a life in hell, we have been reconciled to a holy God only because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. That is the ultimate great reversal. That in my flesh, I was destined for a life enslaved to sin, going to hell, and Jesus changed my hard heart. He turned it into a heart of flesh. And it's not something that I did. It's something that he did. And if you're in Christ today, always remember what we learned in 1 John. Regeneration precedes faith. God gave you the heart of flesh so that you could respond in repentance and faith. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace that he bestows upon us. I close with this quote, which, by the way, I wish I wrote, but I didn't. God will accomplish his purposes, often slowly and imperceptibly, but nonetheless certainly. Sometimes he will do it through human agents who willingly submit to him. Sometimes he will do it by directing those whose hearts are at enmity to him so that their sinful motives accomplish his perfect purposes. Sometimes he will do it through the collaboration of a whole series of seemingly trivial circumstances, but in the light of the great and precious promise of God, this we know for sure. Our God will save his people. In the light of the cross, we know that his salvation cannot be thwarted. In the light of these heavenly realities, what is left for us to do but to bow our hearts and knees before him and sing his praises? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the great reversal took place in Esther 6. And that for all of those in Christ in this room, the great reversal has taken place in our hearts through the perfect, sinless, holy life of Jesus. And as we now approach this table to celebrate the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may we do so with repentant hearts, ready to confess our sin, and eager to celebrate this family meal as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is in your name we pray. Amen.